suffering is a vital part of the gospel story. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Without uh, a Good Friday, there is no Easter. For followers of Christ in hostile and restricted nations, hardship is a regular part of the Christian life. Suffering and persecution is something to be expected. It's part of sharing the gospel. In spite of the cost, many are choosing to follow a living Savior. When people realize that Christianity is not just a religion, but it's the relationship with the living God, with the living Christ, uh, that makes a difference. We'll learn more about the living Christ and the difference he is making in Sri Lanka right now on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. Welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. I'm in the studio today with Reverend Godfrey Yogaraja, and I hope I said that right. He's the General Secretary of the National Christian Evangelical Alliance of Sri Lanka. Uh, Godfrey, welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. Good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about Sri Lanka. I had the opportunity earlier this year to go to Sri Lanka and to, to kind of visit with some pastors there and get a little bit of an understanding. Uh, just kind of give us the 20,000-foot the view of, of what Sri Lanka, as far as religious persecution, as far as the religious makeup of the country, uh, what's it like? Yeah, as you know, Sri Lanka is a majority Buddhist country. And Buddhism is the dominant religion in Sri Lanka, which was introduced in 247 BC, uh, almost at the time of Lord Buddha's, uh, uh, you know, while he was living itself. And uh, Buddhism has shaped the culture, the language, the society, and the government of Sri Lanka. And uh, even in every uh, government, you'll find uh, the Buddhist uh, National Party uh, part of the coalition government. And um, so Buddhism has been deeply rooted in the Sri Lankan society. And one of the things we heard while I was there was uh, that Sri Lankans, they were kind of given the assignment as the, the guardians of, of Buddhism. They're, they're kind of supposed to be the, the people who protect it. And so they take that very seriously. Yeah, there's a legend that uh, while Lord Buddha was living that he made Sri Lanka the custodian of Buddhism and that uh, every Sri Lankan should promote, foster, and protect Buddhism. So Article 9 of the Sri Lankan Constitution actually incorporates that, where it says the, the state will protect, foster, and promote Buddhism, which is uh, in one sense strange because it's a safeguard in the Constitution for the majority community, yeah. <laughs> while in many countries uh, safeguards are generally given to the minority community. What that means is when you come in as a Christian and say, hey, I want to share the the message, the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ with you, there is really a, a deep-seated cultural opposition to that because you're undermining that role as the, the guardians of, of Buddhism. Yeah, uh, it is because uh, they view Christianity as a foreign religion, 
Uh, there are reasons for it as well because Christianity was introduced in 1505 when the Portuguese conquered the country and then it was the Dutch and the British. So the Sri Lanka was under colonial rule for 450 years and so uh, it is said that the cross followed the sword. And uh, so, so it's very difficult even now to kind of uh, put aside the colonial past and to say that, you know, Sri Lanka now has, uh, the Christians are really deeply rooted in uh, the national life. And uh, if you take the mainline churches mainly, which came from the colonial rulers, they are actually right now more accepted in the Sri Lankan society than the evangelicals, who actually came from the soil because <laughs> they are more indigenous. But the persecution is really with this 1% of evangelical Christians who go through a lot of restriction and persecution, uh, which results in even violence. And uh, we have lost some of our pastors as martyrs as well. And I know the average American that's listening to this, when they think of a Buddhist monk, uh, they see, you know, this little guy in his robes and he's sitting there maybe chanting or humming or you see and Christians in Sri Lanka see a different side of Buddhist monks, even, as you mentioned, sometimes violence, sometimes attacking churches. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of those situations. Yeah, I think popular Buddhism is slightly different to uh, philosophical Buddhism. And uh, we have found, uh, and it's not all, but uh, a, a, a small segment of extremist Buddhists led by extremist Buddhist organizations and extremist monks who have been at the root of some of these attacks. And uh, we have a very extremist organizations like uh, the Bodhubala Sena, BBS, and uh, Singhala Rawaya, and uh, several other you know, organizations which comprise of extremist Buddhist monks. And uh, they have been also uh, working with the state and uh, causing so much of hindrance to Christians. Uh, they have been going with police and even demolishing uh, churches, uh, closing down churches, and uh, this has been a big concern, uh, especially uh, during the last few years, things have been really bad. In 2012, we had 52 incidents of violence against Christians. But in 2013, it increased almost 100-fold to 103 attacks. Wow. And 2014 was, uh, uh, again, 117. And uh, this year, uh, up to now, we have around 70 incidents of violence against churches. So things have been on the increase, and that's a real worry to us. Now, what is what is the role or what is the position of the Sri Lankan government? I know you mentioned that the monks come with the police, so there's a religious aspect to it, but there's also a, a political or a government aspect. What role does the government play in all of this? Uh, after you know more than two decades, we've had a change of government uh, this year, uh, which has promised us good governance. Uh, and we are hoping things would improve. Uh, but from January to now, things have not improved. And so we are waiting for the government, this government especially to deliver on the promises that they made to the people. Uh, but one worrying thing is that even in this particular government, uh, the Jati Kahela Urume or the JHU, which is a party of Buddhist monks, are part of the coalition. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, again, is a bit of an oxymoron because uh, the Buddhist monks don't generally get involved in politics. But in Sri Lanka, they contest and they get into parliament. 
so that itself is against really the philosophical Buddhism part of it. And one of the reasons they got into parliament is to bring the anti-conversion laws. And uh, they wanted a mandate for that. So JHU uh, being part of the government, even with this present government, uh, again, is something that is of concern. But we hope that with a newly democratically elected president and a prime minister, that uh, they would deliver on the promises and see that real democracy flourishes and religious freedom is upheld in the country. You're listening to Todd Nettleton on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. If I'm a, a Buddhist guy living in a village in, in Sri Lanka and I come to, to follow Jesus Christ, what, what is likely to happen to me or what kind of challenges would I face uh, just being an, in an average village in Sri Lanka? Yeah, uh, in many of the Buddhist villages where people have converted, there's been uh, uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, even Christian funerals have been uh, prevented. Um, very recently, this year, uh, there was a funeral where uh, the pastor was conducting the funeral when a mob came in and said, no, you can't have a Christian funeral in a Buddhist village and prevented the burial taking place. Uh, some time ago in a place called Veliveria, uh, you know, even though they, the pastor got a court order to bury uh, and have a Christian funeral in the public cemetery, the mobs were so unruly that uh, the body had to be brought and buried in the person's own garden in the village. Wow. Uh, so things have not been very easy for people who convert. Uh, they are discriminated, they are harassed uh, in the village, and uh, there is a lot of pressure even from family. Uh, so this is something, especially in the rural villages, very common. And so in the rural setting, the pressure is primarily coming from family and from the at the village level, not necessarily at the national government level. Yeah, previously uh, we felt that even at the government level, there was uh, uh, pressure brought on the minority Christian community. Uh, because as you know, and uh, almost 70% are Buddhist in Sri Lanka, 14% Hindus, 7% Muslims, and uh, Protestant Christians are just 1%, so Protestant evangelical Christians. And so they've been under tremendous pressure the last few years. Uh, but what we find is that uh, the police are not at all, uh, there's a lot of police inaction, and, uh, the, and the criminals are allowed to continue with impunity. And uh, a lot of these monks who have been instrumental in attacking churches have not been brought to book, even though there has been evidence. There has been even video evidence. Uh, one of our national television channels, uh, Swarnavahini, uh, even later, I mean, it showed a, a live telecast on television of monks and others attacking a particular church. And yet uh, none of them were arrested or brought to book. And, and that's very worrying. Yeah, that is. You're listening to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio, and we are talking with Pastor Godfrey Yogaraja. He's the General Secretary of the National Christian Evangelical Alliance of Sri Lanka. Uh, one, of the things that, one of the things we heard about while I was there was these uh, funeral societies, and uh, I, it was, it's a different kind of persecution than I've ever heard about anywhere else. Tell us a little bit about that and what that means to be a part of the funeral society— and then what it means when you become a Christian and they say, hey, 
you're out. You can't be a part of it anymore. Yeah, in rural Sri Lanka, you know, every village is part of the funeral and the death society. Uh, and that is whenever there is uh, any kind of function or death or bereavement, uh, uh, the funeral and the death society is the one which is involved in helping. Uh, so everyone pulls money together and uh, financially they take care of uh, whatever needs to be done because uh, these are rural poor people, you know. Um, and uh, so when you are taken out of these societies and kind of uh, almost ostracized, then you find that uh, you are really stranded. You're financially stranded. You are socially not recognized in the village. Uh, you even, if you are an agriculturalist, even to kind of hire equipment, nobody will rent you any equipment. Some shops would turn you back without selling things to you. So it is tough. And uh, these are things which have been happening. Uh, and uh, we have documented these incidents. And there is a lot of evidence to what's uh, been happening to some of these rural Christians who are really suffering. And I know in in the culture, though, the funeral is a very significant thing. It's a very, very significant much. event. And so to be told you're not going to be able to have a funeral or you're not going to be able to get a grave or be buried, that's that really brings a lot of emotional, mental pressure on these new Christians to say, wait a minute, you know, if I, if I follow Jesus, I'm not going to have a funeral. I'm not going to be buried. And I like I say, it was different from anything I've heard anywhere else in the world. It was, just was very unique. Yeah, it, it's very difficult, uh, different to the West because uh, uh, in villages, uh, these communities are very closely knit. So the pressure of being, you know, treated like an outcast, uh, it's really very hurtful. And you feel these are people you have grown up with whom you have really moved with and uh, they're like kith and kin to you. And suddenly you are just thrown out and uh, you feel that you are a real outcast. Uh, so the pressure is really tremendous. And to withstand it, you really need uh, the, the power of God in you uh, because they keep pressurizing you to recant your faith. One of the things that we heard as we were there was uh, just how the church is growing and some of the ways that God is at work. Share with our listeners some of those exciting stories. We've heard stories of healings. We've heard stories of churches that are growing in spite of the pressure that's being brought to bear. Uh, just just share a little bit of the good news. Yeah, there has been, uh, with persecution, uh, we've also seen that the church has been growing. And uh, that's been an encouragement uh, because uh, I think, um, as uh, it, the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, we've had our own martyrs. Um, you know, some years ago, uh, uh, in the deep south of Sri Lanka, Pastor Lionel Jaisinger was killed in a place called Tissa Maharama. And his widow continued the work. And uh, in the deep south, the church is growing. Uh, she has, you know, uh, a number of uh, uh, believers who today have been added to the church. And a lot of it was due to signs, wonders, and miracles that uh, happened in those villages. People were healed. People who opposed and stood against the gospel, uh, you know, were, uh, when they were ill and dying, uh, God brought miracles into their life. Uh, the, I can remember a cancer person, a, a village headman, who was almost dying of terminal illness. And uh, when uh, Christians went and prayed for him, he was just immediately healed. 
and that brought a revival in that particular village. Again, in the east, uh, we found Pastor Lion, uh, Neil uh, Idrisinger, who was killed. His widow continues the ministry, uh, and uh, the church is growing. The church is growing. So intimidation, threats, and even death of uh, pastors have not stopped the church from growing, and it brings to mind the verse, the gates of hell will not prevail against, uh, especially when God is with you. You made a statement, uh, as you were sharing earlier today, about uh, persecution doesn't always make the church grow. Finish that thought, because we do kind of sometimes have that idea, well, you know, persecution is great, it makes the church grow, isn't that wonderful? <coughs> you say, yes, that's true sometimes. Yeah, I think uh, that's very true. I keep emphasizing it because my work is not only in Sri Lanka, but uh, also in the region and uh, even beyond in persecuted and restricted countries. Again and again, I've seen uh, that uh, uh, persecution doesn't always bring growth. Persecution brings growth, but persecution has also killed churches and destroyed churches. If you look at countries like uh, Iraq, Turkey, uh, Cuba and Japan, uh, there was a time when churches flourished. Uh, but in some of these countries today, the, the church is very weak. And, and there is a difference between why churches grow during persecution and why churches are sometimes destroyed during persecution. I think the difference is the teaching, the discipleship, uh, the nurturing and strengthening of the church uh, while persecution or even before the persecution happens. So we believe that if you prepare the church for persecution, if uh, the church is discipled well and taught well, and if it is ready to face persecution, then the church will grow. But if the church is not prepared for persecution and if it's neither discipled or taught or, or equipped, then when persecution comes, the church will completely collapse. And, and uh, so I know, this is something very necessary to understand and to prepare the church. I know part of the work that the, the Christian Evangelical Alliance is doing is training, teaching pastors and teaching how are you doing that and, and how do you prepare them? Because as you say, when, we're, when the church is ready for persecution, then it has a lot of positive benefits. Yeah, it purifies yeah. the church and it strengthens the church. When the church is not ready, sometimes it can destroy the church. How do you how do you get those pastors ready? Yeah, I think we start with uh, some of the biblical foundation causes on the theology of persecution and suffering uh, to understand that suffering and persecution is something to be expected. It's part of the of sharing the gospel and living the gospel and uh, till the final return of Christ uh, that uh, suffering and persecution are part of maybe God's plan of uh, uh, how redemption is going to be finally consummated. Uh, and so if the people don't understand that suffering is part of the purging and refining of the church, uh, then that's going to be a surprise when it comes. Mm -hmm. But if you really understand that it has been part of God's plan, it was how Christ even brought redemption. Uh, without the cross, there is no resurrection. Uh, without uh, a Good Friday, there is no Easter. So one day it was defeat, suffering, and the next day it was triumph and victory. And that's exactly the Christian life. 
And if you understand that, then you will embrace persecution. Not that you willingly kind of ask for it, but when it comes, you're able to go through it. And you, you know that it is part of God's purpose and plan for your life. And we see that happening in the Middle East today. Um, people are, you know, really standing firm, even though they are under tremendous persecution. I've met believers there and I have been encouraged by what's happening there. And in Sri Lanka also, it's been the same. So we train them on uh, not only theology of persecution, but on, on practical aspects of how to uh, kind of uh, under persecution and pressure, how do you kind of respond to it? How do you respond to those who uh, bring evil upon you? How do you do good to those who, you know, uh, how do you repay good with evil? And things also like advocacy on um, on UN mechanisms, on how to use social media in advocacy, uh, and um, and really disciple and train the church uh, to be salt and light uh, in a situation of darkness, and knowing that darkness is coming soon, and that we need to uh, be the light which keeps the society, uh, you know, ready for the return of Christ. You're listening to Todd Nettleton on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. You can listen to every episode of VOM Radio at www.vomradio.net. It's interesting that you talk about training and really practicing to face persecution. We had a, a Iranian house church leader in, in here in the studio, uh, and they said they actually do role-playing of what it's going to be like when the police come through the door. Okay, you be the policeman, I'll be the Christian. Okay, you come through the door. Now, How? what am I going to say? How am I going to respond? Uh, and it sounds like you're talking along the very similar lines of, we're going to prepare ourselves so that when the persecution comes, A, we're not surprised, and B, we're ready to act like Christ towards even towards our persecutors. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, we also uh, teach the churches to be culturally sensitive to be part of the village and to be very involved in the village. We teach them also that the enemy is not the state or the monks or the extremist Buddhists, but the enemy is Satan. And so we need to cover ourselves with prayer and that it's a spiritual warfare. I know we not we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. Uh, again, we also want to equip uh, the believers not have everything just hinge on the pastor so that every single believer is equipped so that even if they are scattered, each of them could train others and uh, be a pastor to those who need their guidance. Uh, and also another very interesting thing I think is uh, that we need to have unity in the church. We need to have oneness uh, because several times when the church is divided, then it is easy for the enemy to uh, really disrupt and cause chaos. But if you are united and if you are standing firm, then you have each other uh, to support each other, to be accountable to each other, to pray for each other, and to go forward. And how does how does persecution impact that, that sense of unity? Uh, I know we see in other nations persecution 
brings the church together, forces Christians sometimes to work together, to minister together. Is that true in Sri Lanka as well? Yeah, that's very true because uh, persecution has in one way united the church, brought the church together. And uh, maybe it's a kind of a negative thing uh, which has brought church unity. Uh, but it, it's something I think God has used to show each one that they need their brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, we are a small minority, so we need to stand together. And we are one body. And when another is affected, then you feel it. Uh, it's scriptural as well. So and as a body of Christ, uh, the Sri Lankan church has stood together. And uh, also we have realized that church is not a building. Church is not, uh, you know, just made out of brick and mortar. But uh, church is the body of Christ, the, the gathering of believers. And that cannot be destroyed. Even if churches are burnt and uh, property is destroyed, uh, the body of Christ, which comprises of believers, cannot be destroyed. And so the church will go forward. Amen. We've talked a little bit about what's happening in the Buddhist areas of Sri Lanka, but I know there's the church is growing also in the Hindu areas. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of what God is doing in those parts of the country? Yeah, uh, especially the Hindu areas, especially in the northeast of the country, have suffered much because uh, there has been a 30-year war. So uh, we have had uh, several churches uh, who have been casualties in the war, and now we are churches where there are just crosses standing, um, churches were functioning in refugee camps. And uh, so the church there has also been a suffering church. Uh, many pastors have lost their life in the, in the war. And uh, yet we see today there is uh, out of this desperation, hopelessness, uh, that uh, people have seen that the gospel has gives them hope. And that has made uh, quite a number of them embrace Christianity and follow Christ. Uh, because I think when people realize that Christianity is not just a religion, but it's a relationship with the living God, with the living Christ, uh, that makes a difference. So we don't just follow just the rituals and the religiosity uh, of uh, just being religious, but here is a dynamic relationship with a living God. And I think that's something that uh, uh, people recognize and want to have that relationship, even Christians born into a nominal Christian family, you know, move from self to Christ. Right. And that relationship is dynamic. As we finish up, let's talk about uh, how we can pray, because we want to equip our listeners to pray. How can we pray for the nation of Sri Lanka and especially for our Christian family there? As I mentioned, there's a new government in Sri Lanka. There is a, a, a kind of uh, fresh air uh, which has kind of blown in. Uh, and um, because, you know, there has been a lot of human rights violation and even the UN bought a resolution for crimes against humanity against the Sri Lankan government. So now we see uh, the international community also coming alongside and working with the government to see that the human rights situation and uh, good governance uh, and uh, things like that would be in place. And I think the church should also play its role and uh, the church has always been very prophetic and uh, stood in the gap. And I pray that you would uh, pray that this church would be strengthened in Sri Lanka, that the believers would stand firm through the persecution. And uh, not that we may not have persecution, but even through the persecution that we would be faithful to Christ and uh, that we would fulfill the calling of the church in Sri Lanka to be the church that it has to be to be the salt and light that God calls us to be. 
and to fulfill the prophetic role that the church has been called to in Sri Lanka. Amen. I invite our listeners to join in praying for the church in Sri Lanka. We've been speaking with Reverend Godfrey Yogaraja. He's the General Secretary of the National Christian Evangelical Alliance of Sri Lanka. Thank you, Godfrey, for being our guest today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you, Todd. It's been a privilege to be here and to share with you. And may God bless your ministry as well as you help the persecuted church worldwide. I hope you've been encouraged by the stories of our spiritual family in Sri Lanka and that you'll pray for that beautiful nation this week. As always, you can connect with me online at vomradio.net. I'd love your thoughts about this week's program or maybe a question you have about persecution. That website is vomradio.net. And please share about VOM Radio with your friends, your Sunday school class, or other Christians that will be encouraged by these stories. They can find every episode at vomradio.net. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.